Hi there and welcome to Leading with James Ashton. This podcast brings together leaders from the worlds of business, charity, the arts and this time education. They're here to share how they learned to lead and their successes and failures at the top. This podcast is supported by Saxton Bamfield, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Find out more about their services at saxbam.com. This episode goes back to school considering leadership in education from the early years to adulthood. Leonor Szczepic is the CEO of Montessori St. Nicholas. It's the UK charity that oversees the Montessori method of teaching at numerous schools and nurseries. Alongside her is Dame Janet Beer. She's the Vice-Chancellor of the University of Liverpool, one of the UK's largest academic institutions. Read their biographies in the episode notes. I began the conversation asking Janet about her biggest challenge as a leader in the university sector. Well, there are a range of challenges. Every time I think that the external environment has become more turbulent than it ever has before, it grows ever more turbulent. So higher education is a world, I guess, that people say used to be sleepy, but I must say that in my experience, it has never been anything other than eventful, full of challenges, Um, not least leadership challenges, because the organisations that vice-chancellors like me have to lead are incredibly complicated. They have big turnovers, they have complex leadership structures, a mix of the, because it's always been done like this, and the innovative. So whilst they are full of the most forward-thinking people in the world who, on a daily basis, make discoveries that improve life for everyone, there are certain things about the structures in which we operate that that don't make it very easy to to move quickly. So you have to have respect for tradition, and I know that I am merely the custodian of the great University of Liverpool, but you also have to be able to respond and think on your feet and not to jump too fast, but to be aware that there is an external environment which is very demanding as well as the Mm. internal organisational one. And Janet, you mentioned turnover there as one of the first points. So you regard the university as a a business almost, as a a purveyor of of service. Well, if I tell you that the northern eight universities, that's the eight research intensives, have a turnover bigger than the entire Premier League. So Mm. that gives you an idea of the scale of just Mm. the northern eight. My turnover is 550 million a year, Mm. which is... Again, to carry on with the football comparison, 100 million per annum more than Liverpool Football Club. Certainly more than Huddersfield Town. Indeed. Uh, which, okay, so you, have to, so you have to regard it as a business, but also because of that sense of tradition, you are custodian of a great institution. So yeah. tread carefully. With a fantastic set of stories, a fantastic heritage, you know, endowed in 1881, 45 students, and we now have more than 30,000 there are many, many differences between now and our founding. But the, you know, the plaque on the wall of our Victoria Gallery and Museum, the original red brick building of red brick university fame, says for advancement of learning and ennoblement of life. Mm. And that's not changed. Mm. Any frustration with you then that you aren't able to move faster because of that sense of tradition? It seems like the people in the organisation who might be a break on change. Not necessarily that they're a break on change. But that wheels necessarily grind quite slowly mm. to take any major changes through um, the the governance systems. I mean, we we are reforming them. the The major relationship between me and my senior leadership team, and 
a governing body is literally that, the university council, so my boss, the president of council, and the independent council members who are responsible for the educational character but also the sustainability of mm. the institution. Mm. Leonor, you've nodded all the way through, through a lot yes. of that, which doesn't always resonate on a podcast, but you feel that when you're leading an organisation, there's a, there's a sort of a, a hope to race forward, but also some people you know, putting the brakes on as well? To a certain extent, we, we have, I mean, similar challenges in that there's the external and the internal environment. Um, I've been CEO for just over a year. Uh, Montessori St. Nicholas is an organisation that's been going for 65 years. We have had some challenges in the past around some of the leadership. Uh, one of my predecessors is actually in prison for fraud. It's public knowledge. So, you know, I inherited an interesting situation um, it, we realised very quickly when I when we came in when I came in and, and recruited a new exec team that we needed to do a transformation. We'd been very insular. We'd been talking very much to the Montessori community and not to the wider community. There is a, a perception, a misperception that Montessori is about sort of nice nurseries for middle class children. Whilst actually that's not where Maria Montessori started. She actually started in in the then slums of Rome for the working class children. So I think that I'm quite keen because we are a charity, but also have a training college and, you know, so have to be commercial as well. But I'm very keen to try and sort of shift that perception and do more and actually work with colleagues across the education field to say that actually, you know, we, we aren't alternative, but we are something, we, we sort of have a different aspect a different view of how we can educate young children and how can we work with colleagues in the education field to sort of add value so it's, it's a big big shift but you know I've had people there who've been there for sort of 40 years I have to say they're the ones that are the most keen for the change to happen mm. but um, it is it is a challenge when you do a big transformation but you wouldn't wish what you inherited on any organization but surely <laughs> as a leader coming in it's been quite helpful hasn't it there's no one there to say it was better in the old days race forward and, and reform well, to, it your to way a, to a certain extent yes um, we had to do a very big shift in culture very much sort of, uh, yes, we don't do this anymore. I mean, I suppose where I'm very, very fortunate is that the values that I'm trying to sort of bring into the organisation are actually Montessori values. So it's very much about saying to people, we should be living the values that we we believe in. So it is about that shift in, in so that shift has been a little easier because if you sort of frame it that way, people understand mm. why we're doing it. We did actually change the whole board. Um, mm. So that was quite an interesting experience to go through. Not the easiest thing to do, but yes, there, no. were, there were changes that needed to be and made. And Montessori is one of those brands that everyone is aware of it, but I think those people aren't necessarily sure about what it stands for. You exactly. talked about the, the nice nurseries for, for, for nice middle-class children. Yes. What should it stand for? I think it's, it should stand for education for all children. That's our vision, that all children should have the opportunity to experience the Montessori um, way. What's really interesting is many, many of our students that come and train with us as Montessori teachers actually go back into the state system. Um, they don't necessarily go into work in Montessori nurseries. Mm. Um, and I think that actually early years is moving in the direction of sort of the Montessori philosophy anyhow, about mm. being child-led, about not sort of just you know having children sitting in front of you and you sort of put knowledge in their heads, but helping children learn. So I think we're, we're in the sort of the right space historically to, mm. to sort of bring our message forward. And, and I hope that we can do that and show that we can add value. So 
I'll give you an example of a very recent thing that's just come out. Well, it's going to come out in a couple of weeks. That um, we've done a sort of collaboration with the Jane Goodall Institute, um, working on lesson plans and activities for primary school children, and that's going to go into state primaries. So th- that's the sort of work that I think, if we can show by example, that we're we're not elitist. Mm-hmm. And you obviously are both in the education world offering, operating at sort of a different age range, if you like. Janet, I'm interested in your experience over the years of leading a number of these institutions. It feels like there's much more focus now among the leadership. You have to be able to offer quality and demonstrable value or else you'll, you'll, you'll be undone. I mean, how, how does that feed through into your yeah, role? I mean, it's, we're, we're not dissimilar. No, no. We're values-led organisations mm. and that's values. But you're right, there is a big conversation about value, about the yes. price of things, the worth of things, Absolutely. You know, measurable targets. And you will have, you know, you and your colleagues will have been on the end of, you know, they need to be able to do this, this and this. Well, maybe not by the time they're five, you know, people have to exactly. play, well, exactly. you know, yes. and everybody needs to know how to play. And one of the things that students should be doing, you know, when they're at university is is playing but is, you know, joining in teams and learning leadership that way, is getting different kinds of experience. You know, they're in a unique environment. They're never going to be in such a mixed environment with so many people from all over the world, you know, 100 different nationalities perhaps in the, you know, in the student body. They're exposed to people from different cultures, different value sets. You know, I say in every graduating speech, I hope that during your time here at Liverpool you will have learned many things in the classroom, many things outside the classroom, but above all, I want you to have learned to disagree well because you need to be tolerant, you need to be able to work together even if you have fundamental disagreements. So we are values-led as an organisation, but, you know, there are challenges as regards efficiency, as regards value for money for students, but when a value is put on higher education that is simply about how much you earn, then that doesn't describe what my students want. That doesn't describe, you know, what they've come for. It's ridiculous to say that the only indicator of the value of their degree is their HMRC data, you know, when they're age 30. Some students who go in and out of jobs in the creative industries, which is, after all, a massive success story in the UK, our digital, our creative industries, they may never have had a job. <laughs> they, they may work for themselves. They may work on short-term contracts. And I hope that their work brings them joy. That, for me is what education is about, mm. so that you have the choice to do something with your life that you find fulfilling. And so we know that every single graduate, and this is OECD calculations, saves their nation over the course of a lifetime $100,000 in money that does not have to be spent in the justice system, in the health system, mm. in social security. You know, graduates tend to read to their children. Mm. They tend to be law-abiding. They tend to volunteer. They do all kinds of things that are net contributors rather than a drain on the way in which any nation works. So I think education is always a good thing. And what do you say to employers who sometimes grumble that the graduates coming out of universities are not, in inverted commas, work ready? Is that missing the point? Is that only a small slice of the equation? I think it is. One of my colleagues rather famously went back with 
well, are you graduate ready? <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, yeah. the, the skills that, that young people bring, and, and some of my colleagues don't really understand. We grew up in the last century on ways of working, you know, with index cards and catalogues and making notes. It took me weeks to get hold of that journal article from the US. You know, you click a button now mm. and it, it's, it's downloaded. Mm. They work faster. They, they have different forms of knowledge. Mm. They don't need to learn in the same way mm. that, that we had mm. to learn because it was learn it or or not have access to mm. it. So we need constantly to understand that they have different kinds of skills and different kinds of quicknesses and intelligence. I absolutely agree because, you know, I often get asked to speak about, you know, are, you know, are children digital mm. ready because the world of work is changing and, you know, and if you talk to, as I've done to some of the big companies, um, particularly in the digital space like Microsoft, Google, they will say digital skills isn't about computer skills. It's actually about creativity. It's about problem solving. It's about critical thinking. It's about all those sorts of things that are the softer skills that you can't necessarily measure. And I agree, you know, we train teachers, Montessori teachers. We, we, we are the only UK Montessori training provider that actually has a full degree. So you can do a BA honours mm. at Montessori. And very much our, our students are going to come out and probably never reach very high levels of income. Mm. But that doesn't make them any less professional, any less competent, whole human beings that contribute to society. And in fact, I would argue they're doing a very important job mm. because they're actually going to teach the future generation yeah. and give them the start in life. So I think there is this need for us to, and I like this idea, are they graduate ready? <clears throat> I would just say, what is work ready? What mm. does that mean anymore? Mm. You know, if you if you have this vision of, you know, you have to be able to do these certain things. I, you know, I've always said with my staff, you can teach skills. What you can't teach is behavior. If you mm. learn, you know, how to behave as a whole human being and think about tolerance, think about how do I interact with people. You can, you can learn how to use a computer. Mm. We've all learned skills. As you look forward mm. a few years of leading Montessori, what will the success look like? Is it more Montessori trained teachers in schools or is it more awareness of the education bottlenecks? You know, you've got so many functions. Yeah, I, I think for us it is about, obviously we would like to teach more students only because we feel that, as I said, we can we can add value even in the state system. Um, we also have a lot of international students. Thirty percent of our students are actually from overseas, and uh, so it for us it's important about getting the message out there that it's actually a way of learning. It's a way of teaching young children, as you say, that play is really important. It's actually the most effective way for children to learn as well and kind of get that message out there that, mm. that we shouldn't be afraid. It's not alternative. So it is about getting awareness. But in order to get that awareness out, you do need to have teachers out mm. there, but also raising the quality of Montessori so that people really understand. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Montessori schools around the world that put the name Montessori in it because it means they can charge higher fees and they're not really following the Montessori practice so there is something about ensuring that there is that quality there are there any well. of those in the UK that are, are maybe not not where you would like them to be not that we know of at the moment but <laughs> <laughs> what, a, what a wonderful answer <laughs> but that is a continuous program of work yes. that we have because you so, have to be you're yeah. kind of you're training you're researching you're accrediting you're yeah. kind of the brand custodian in the UK yes. which is quite a responsibility for a best part of what 80 90 years old the the brand well well yes it's 100 years, 100 of, Mar years of Maria Montessori training in the UK yeah. so this is this year actually we celebrated yeah. 100 years of yeah. Montessori in the UK yeah, yeah. Janet you have a 5 year plan 
I think. Mm-hmm. And and it's a ten year strategy. I'm sorry, I'm five years five. out, which is not bad. <laughs> and in common with some of the other leaders in the university industry, it there's a real go for growth. I at think the we moment. prefer sector to industry. Sector, sorry. Yes. But it's but it is go for growth. That that's right. Um not really. We did grow, but now I think we think that you know, we're, we're at a good size. We want to grow online and we want to grow that in the UK as well as um, throughout the world. Well, that's quite bold because I think you want to be, I may get some of this right, you want to be the number one online postgrad course provider. Well, we, we are in Europe okay. already. So in terms of wholly online, I mean, I absolutely adore our online graduates. They come to Liverpool only once. Mm. For their graduation ceremonies Mm -hmm. and they bring their families and we do special receptions for them and they have a great time you know they walk across the stage like the you know the the kings and queens of learning that they are and they really enjoy the moment and they are our most devoted uh, alumni you know they turn up to the gatherings that we have all over the world when members of staff travel for for business they generally do some work bringing alums together and um they are fantastic students they spend 20 hours per week in a virtual classroom mm. with people from all over the world who they only meet at graduation if they're lucky and you know as i said they are fantastic students our face to face students as well obviously are a rich mix undergraduates postgraduates home eu overseas mm. and again I go back to those mm-hmm. those those classrooms i i can't claim that they're crafted american universities talk about crafted classrooms mm. i you know selecting exactly who's going to be in there but they are as close as to it uh, in the sense that they are such an interesting mixture of people from all walks of life who you will never find together in a room again, mm. so to speak. Mm. So, so yes, going back to our ambitions, yeah, we, ha- we want to grow the online because we think it's a means of widening participation for postgraduate students. You know, our, our students in Africa studying for the Masters in Public Health, many of them are doctors. Mm. It gives them a whole new dimension to mm. their work. They can do that without giving up their jobs, their families. And how does that sync together? Because you're wanting to, your stated aim is to be more international, but you also, at the same, you want to be more rooted in your community. Yeah. So, I mean, for instance, by far our standout research, the jewel in our crown Mm. in terms of medical research is infectious disease. Mm -hmm. Long history in Liverpool, um, alongside our neighbouring Liverpool School of Tropical Medicine in work on infectious disease. My colleagues saving literally hundreds of thousands of children's lives in Malawi and elsewhere with their work to develop a vaccine against the rotavirus. Diarrhea kills children in you know, sub-Saharan Africa and they're working to, to stop that. But that doesn't mean we have to neglect the home population. Sure. And we, you know, we have, as alongside the, the city council and the city region, an ambition to help people start well, live well and age well mm. in the city region. And we're investing a huge amount of time and energy into focusing our research efforts on improving the health outcomes. Mm. Is it easy to lead academics? I would think some of them would be, I would think, very, very focused on their discipline, their project, eyes on the lab bench or whatever. How do, how do you get them to be, I suppose the word is collegiate? Um, well, 
If we stay talking about medicine, mm. a lot of my colleagues wake up in the morning wanting to help people and make their mm. lives better. And I'm hoping that in every other discipline that they have similarly positive ambitions. It's not always the case because human nature is human nature. But I think I'd go back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of being a values-led organisation and a kind of membership organisation. You know, it is a very interesting question, isn't it? What kind of organisation is a university? If it were a commercial organization maybe the closest model would be john lewis or something where where everybody's a partner everybody's mm. a member of the university community no matter what job they do we all have a job to serve our students and serve the the external world mm. in terms of our research mm. breakthroughs mm. you know as you were saying there are many people who have been in the organization a long time who are absolutely dedicated to to its success mm. but you know you do need to i think enlist people in a set of ambitions, yep. something that really they can find inspiring. You know, I said, you, you said because of where the organisations come from in its recent history, it isn't hard for you to enlist people in what you're going to do with it. But what sort of style do you employ when you're managing people? I try to sort of help them understand that we're all there for one purpose. So there's a lot lot of communication, a lot of discussion. Um, you know, we when I started, um, I introduced monthly staff meetings. They'd, they'd never actually had whole staff meeting before mm. where people talk to each other. Cross discipline, we create project teams, people are working across disciplines, we have town halls. So there's a lot of communication. It doesn't always succeed, but you have to keep going at it. And I think there's it's very important as a leader to understand that just because you say something once doesn't mean you have to sort of not say it 20 times there is a sort of you have to keep repeating people reminding people sort of bind people to that vision of what you want to do as an organization and I think people genuinely join organizations because they believe in the vision of the organization mm. generally and I think that's even in com in the commercial sector I think the world is changing so it wasn't like when I first started work where it was you go for a job and you get pay and that's the end of it. People are much more invested into what is their organisation doing, why are we doing this, what is the purpose of this? And I think keeping, you know, you have to keep reminding people what the purpose is. You're a little bit of a, of a rare breed because you have this oh voluntary... No, no, it's all positive, it's all good. Um, but it's interesting in your CV that there's a, a real core of these voluntary charitable organizations mm. that you've led but also the private sector as well so yes. your previous job raft which uh, was about yeah. medical research and yeah. so on into to help people who'd been affected by burns and other yeah. injuries but you led a spin out of a yes. company there there's a commercial application that you yes. put into a private company and you were running them you're running them both so you yes. are not a you're not a typical charity leader is what i'm getting at no, that wasn't on purpose, I have to say. We spun out the company, and this was during the recession, because we wanted to get this research to people. We mm. felt it was going to be life-changing. And actually, I became the CEO because the initial... We didn't have any money to put into it. We weren't mm. a very rich charity. We knew we had to raise investment, and the four initial investors said, well, we'll only put money in if you're the CEO. And I said, well, but I have a job. And I don't want to be the CEO of the company. I know mm. nothing about life sciences. But they said, well, we're not going to put the money in otherwise. So I sort of ended up doing it, really, because someone had to. So it wasn't exactly, it wasn't a career plan. So if you were to write a book, it would be called The Reluctant Entrepreneur. It was, it was, no, I quite, I'm quite entrepreneurial. I like that side of it. I think I, I did enjoy doing it, mm. you know, because I, I do like the entrepreneurial side of things. And, and I like a challenge. But um, I certainly didn't go out looking for it. Uh, mm. But Yes, it was. It, it, what I think it did is it, having also worked in the in the private sector, in the commercial sector before, yep. 
I was able to bring those skills to it. And I think I, I learned a huge amount. And, uh, and I th- yeah, I'm very grateful. It's helping me in this job now. There's been a little bit of criticism the last few years about charities and the passion of a leader is not quite enough and that there's a push to professionalise and, and have greater financial discipline. Do you recognise that? Do you agree with that? I think you can have both, can't you? I don't think that... I, I certainly couldn't lead an organisation if I didn't have passion for the mission of yep. the organisation. That doesn't stop me being hopefully professional and financially aware because if you're going to have a successful sustainable organization that's what you have to do mm. i don't think that stops someone being passionate about it you you agree janet i do and i'd just like to come back to something leonor said just now in terms of communication it's really important you can't make people come and you can't make them no. read your emails no. but you know i have an extended senior leadership team meeting once a month, I meet my team every week, open meetings, town hall meetings three times a year, where you know we generally present something, but then there are questions. Mm. I visit every single department, professional services as well as academic, once a year. And again, people can turn up or not. I'm, I make myself available. Yeah. I, I write all staff emails, not every every week nor even every month but when there is something to say yes um and um you know we distribute decisions made at executive board and all the rest of it so my view is very few things need to be secret oh i agree if they agree if they concern individuals you know students or staff yes then of course there needs to be confidentiality but i think that things should be available and people actually get bored very quickly you know, because if it is available, they're like, well, it can't be worth reading. Mm. <laughs> so, mm. Yes, know. it has to be. You have to keep offering something that, that people you want to engage with. I want to pick up on the, the point of financial discipline, Janet. I mean, in your sector, there's expansion, there's people borrowing money and so on. Do you worry that there are peers in your sector that are overstretched? There's financial problems ahead for some of the UK universities? We've been undergoing a set of challenges around the demographic decline. So there are institutions who may be under previous leaderships invested hugely in infrastructure or buildings or expansion yep. or whatever. And the numbers of home students are simply not there at the moment, but they will be back. So between 2021 and 2030, there'll be an extra 350,000 students wanting to come into higher education. Mm. And every year, despite the demographic dip, numbers have been going up and we have been also educating more students from first in family backgrounds, etc. So, you know, a good job is being done. But some institutions, I think, are a bit overstretched. And when student number controls were moved, it put the power very much in the hands of the students mm. rather than the institution to say yes or no. And so that has caused some perturbations. But I think the sector is generally very mm. robust. Mm. I mean, there are you know, new entrants into the market, private providers, whose business model does not perhaps have student success at its heart. Mm. And I think they may struggle. Who, who are they? Well, I mean, too numerous to mention, but they are not, shall we say, UUK members. Okay, okay. Can I go back to how you got where you are? Because you were an academic, Edith Wharton, uh-huh. and prior to that you were in, in the Education Authority in London. What is it that gets someone to go from being an academic, absolutely you know, subsumed in, in the subject they love, to, to go into, I guess there's administration first, mm-hmm. there's leadership. Um, how, how does that happen? Well, when I finished my PhD and I had no desire to do anything other than follow a conventional academic path, having kind of committed to the, you know, 
the masters and then the mm. the, the PhD, um, and taught all the way through my my PhD at Warwick where I did that. Then in 1983, when I finished my PhD, there were literally no jobs. Mm. Uh, Warwick had a uh, 30 staff in English. I think they had to lose five before they could replace one. Keith Joseph was the education secretary. Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister. Higher education was being cut. There was no expansion at all. Many of my generation disappeared. They went overseas. Mm. They went into other careers. And I could have stayed at Warwick, subbing, you know, teaching on an hourly basis. But I thought, well, you know, I think I probably would like a salary. I'd probably like a career. So I, I did the GLC ILEA fast track. Um, program and went in as a graduate trainee and spent seven very happy years in County Hall uh, learning all kinds of things that I would never have learned as a young academic when I was head of staffing for the boroughs of Camden and Westminster every single member of staff from head teachers to schoolkeepers were in the you know in a sense in my in my remit and you know my section put teachers in front of primary school children every day and um, I was running a big team and you know, one of the most amazing things about County Hall, under the leadership of Ken Livingston and Francis Morell, was the staff development. Mm. I became a junkie at that point for staff development. I had great management training, great kind of peer learning. Um, you know, it was it was fantastic. And the practice in terms of equality and diversity in GLC ILEA at that point mm. was without peer and in fact when they were abolished instead of that disappearing it just got distributed through the country i think and you know caused an uplift in terms of you know the way in which people regarded uh, work in equality and diversity anyway so i took that i was lucky enough to get an academic job i'd had two children whilst working in um, county hall and whilst on maternity leave i turned my phd into a book and so that was published my first book on edith wharton because not, not as if you were busy <laughs> <laughs> well, there aren't many things as i tell people with altogether too much frequency i can do anything while breastfeeding <laughs> i can peg out washing i can type you know you name it over the top of my poor my poor infants. Yeah, so I had a book coming out in 1990 and I think on the back of that I got a, I was lucky enough to get an academic job and um, that was a steep learning curve, getting back up to speed in my subject, in my discipline. Lucky I had small children because I couldn't go out in the evenings anyway, so there was nothing to do but work. Hmm. And yeah, I, you know, resumed my work in American literature, you know, developed an interest in contemporary Canadian women writers as well. But the management bug was there, so I liked leading things, organising things. I was asked to temporarily be head of an English department while the, yeah. um, while the head was on sabbatical. And I thought, yeah, I quite like this. And then so, you never get asked to do less from that point onwards. No, and I, you know, I loved being a head of department. It was the next one that was the long dark night of the soul. Do I want to now detach myself from the discipline? Do I want to be a pro vice chancellor? Mm. And, you know, something you said just now, Leonore, resonated with me when you said about the company. Yeah. They said, we're not going to do it unless you do this. It's kind of blackmail, isn't it? Mm. But there's many women that I talk to, you know, about leadership and about their career journeys recognise this. I have sometimes applied for jobs for fear who I would be managed by if I didn't. Oh, interesting. <laughs> interesting. Yeah. That one, I, I kind of had to take myself off, off into a corner and sure. really work out what I wanted. By yeah. that point, you were at Manchester Metropolitan. Yeah. yeah. Leonor, I'll come to you because there was, a, there was a switch, not similar but different, 15 years, I think, in the private sector. Yes. And then you reinvented yourself. <laughs> other, than, other than the, yeah. the commercial spin-out I talked about, then you've spent, I think, 20-plus years, you know, a whole range of charitable organisations, really campaigning roles. So campaigning uh, for the 
playing fields of, of Britain for the Galapagos yeah. and now for you know, education standards. Yeah. Tell me about that switch. That was a whole life switch. So I, I, I was running my own business. I was working as a consultant, helping SMEs with um, their growth and development. And um, I, I was very fortunate. I had a contract that ended that actually I was in Spain. I, I'm bilingual Spanish. And that left me at a point where, you know, I didn't have to go straight into another contract. I, I wasn't married. I didn't have any commitments at that time. And so I decided to go and volunteer in former Yugoslavia during the war because I had worked with children who were refugees when I was at Amnesty uh, as a volunteer and met my husband, realised that actually this is what I want to do for the rest of my life, uh, came back and decided to go into the charity sector. And that mm. was really, um, I think it was that experience that made me think, it, ma it made me realise, it reminded me of how important it is to be able to make a difference and that's what drives me is sort of being able to make a difference i i was very very fortunate i am the child of refugees my my family came over to england i had the opportunities that none of my peers in spain had i was the first woman to have a career the first woman to sort of go into further education in my family because of that and i've always been sort of driven by that need of if I've been so fortunate because of the opportunities I had I have to give something back and mm. and going into the charity sector allowed me to do that and that involves leading from the front then does it yes <laughs> you have probably, said... probably because I'm not very good at being led by people right. whose leadership skills I don't respect <laughs> you said in a previous interview I think it was when you were in the private sector that mm. it was there were some points where it was quite tough yeah and I think you've said that you were felt like you had to act like a man in a skirt to yeah, get anywhere. Yeah, it and felt inauthentic. Do you feel, are you in a sector now where you can be yourself and do I, good things? I don't know if it's the sector. I think it, it just may be my leadership journey so far. I feel that I can be who I am and have my own leadership style and still succeed. You know, I started work in the 80s, which was, and I went into the city, which mm. was a very sort of alpha male environment. And it was sort of very much about consumerism and money and yuppies and all that sort of stuff. And I think that there was a lot of pressure put on women to behave in that way. And also, I mean, the only senior woman I knew of was actually Margaret Thatcher. I, but there weren't, mm. you know, sort of women around that I could see, well, you know, she's reached the pinnacle um, and, and someone who I can look up to and, and emulate. So we, I think for women of my generation, and I don't know, Janet, if that's the same, you know, if you feel the same way, we had to create what should be the leadership style for women mm -hmm. in a way because yeah. we had nobody to guide us and tell us how that should be done. And that's why I'm very passionate about mentoring because mm -hmm. I think that having got to that stage, I, I want to sort of show women behind me that actually it's okay to be yourself and you don't have to follow a certain leadership style. Mm. I've I've had many, many predominantly, well, completely male leaders say to me, oh, no, no, but leadership is this. And I've thought, well, yeah, maybe for you, but it's not for mm. me. Mm. That's not how I believe in leading people. It might work for you, but it wouldn't work for me. So I think being in a position where I can actually live the leadership life that I want to yeah. lead is really privilege does this resonate janet i think you've talked in the yeah, past absolutely. this this pr word progressive i think the you the higher education sector has not mm. quite been as progressive as it might yeah, have been i mean it, it has got better i mean even in a, my mm. membership of the board of universities uk to begin with let's say eight ten years ago i'd be sitting in a board meeting and i'd be we'd be looking at the program for the annual conference and there wouldn't be a single woman on the stage <laughs> in any of the sessions and i would wait for a bit and then i would say 
I would really enjoy it if somebody else made this point, but clearly nobody else is going to make this point, so I have to make this point. Look at the stage. There's no diversity mm. there. Mm. It's, you know, it's monotone, et cetera, et cetera. It's not like that anymore. These are called manals, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Indeed. So, I mean, yesterday, in fact, we welcomed the rector of a a university in Turkey to my university and three of the senior team and I met with him and it just so happened it's the half of the senior team that is entirely female. And um, he, he said... I don't think much of your diversity. <laughs> uh, it was a joke. Um, and, um, you know, he has a 50-50 team and I pretty much do as well. Yeah. But, you know, I have always th- thought that there should be at the very least targets and I wouldn't at all be against quotas. I think that, you know, people may decry the Norwegian board ambitions that they you know, they enshrined in law. But it has made a huge difference. Now, friends of mine who don't believe in quotas will say, but it's made no difference as regards CEOs. It has as regards boards. But you have to start somewhere, Mm. I think. So, I mean, my preferred mode is to say that organisations, boards, etc. should have a 40% target for either gender and that gives you 20% in the middle Mm. so Mm. but I think it's really nice now that we don't have to be saying it the whole time and again what you said Leonor really resonated with me I feel that now I'm old enough and experienced enough to be completely authentic yeah and to a certain extent, what you see is what you get. Yeah. It's really mm. important, yeah. I think. You can't be a true leader if you're not no. authentic. And to talk a little about mentorship, either who's mentored you or who, who you are mentoring. So you've talked, I mean, Margaret Thatcher wasn't a direct mentor, I guess. No. Course, she was someone you could see. <laughs> well, she was the only woman I could see at the time in a senior role. It mm. was, it was, you know... It was, That's terrifying. It, well, it was, yes. the, uh, it was genuinely the only... And, mm. and you know, certainly, you know, going into the city, there was, you know, the women yeah. were the, you know, were the secretaries or, mm. you know, the typist pool or something. Yeah. There was there was nobody around that you could say, oh, look, you know, here's, here's mm. a senior woman. You know, for that reason, I've had one female mentor who was the CEO of the first charity I went into, so, so basically, when I when I came back from Croatia, which is where I ended up working, and I wanted to get into the charity sector, and the only job going was a, as a receptionist, and so I applied for it. And the CEO, who was female, who'd actually been a head teacher of a school, said to me, "Why do you want this job? You know, you're so overqualified." I said, "Well, I really want to work for a charity." And to give her her due, she she took me on, and and she was trying to change the charity around, and and because I'd done it, I sort of you know, in my spare time, wrote her a plan and then went to see her and said, this is how I think you could do it and I can help you. And again, she she was, you know, she was open-minded enough to not go, oh, who are you? You're the receptionist. What are you talking about? Mm. She actually read it. She called me in and she said, yeah, this sounds very good. And I said, well, look, I'll implement it for you. Pay me what you're currently paying me. And then in six mm. months, we've, we've changed things, then we can talk. And she really was the first person that kind of said, yeah, I believe in you. I'm going to help mm. you and I'm going to listen to you, which I think is really important. Mm. So she was great. I've had coaches and mentors throughout my career for short periods of time, which, you know, I'm very grateful to them. I do mentor people. I do mentoring with the Sherry Blair Foundation. So I mentor young female entrepreneurs mm. in Africa, mostly it's two, two mentees I have is in, are in Africa. But I also mentor um, other CEOs of smaller mm. charities um, who are starting out to help them. Janet, who helped you along the way? Uh, well, a lot of people, but, you know, standout was, um, uh, unlike you, there, there were senior women in, in universities, although not very mm. many. And my... The big boss at MMU, Dame Sandra Burslem, was an incredible 
force for change and good in my life and I'm undyingly grateful to her. So she, I was the head of department, she kind of made all kinds of things possible for me, you know, would just let me know about opportunities. She was a big staff development fan as well and so, you know, when I was a PVC dean she suggested I go on the senior women leadership course at Harvard which is an intensive week-long mm. course but absolutely life-changing she also put me forward for the top management program mm. and you know supported you know when I would I would say do you think I ought to apply for this you know board membership or that role in a new HE body or something she absolutely always behind me and you know incredibly positive and enabling so she was brilliant and did you pick up some skills from her as well about I how she so. because if it's been if it's been tough for your generation to some extent for her it must have been oh I mean she had the most amazing career and the adversity that she came back from is a a whole novel but just suffice it to say that um, when she was newborn her father was working in Shanghai and she spent the first five years of her life in a Japanese prisoner of war camp Mm. so Mm. anyway she's a she's an amazing person but I have tried always to live by the words of Madeleine Albright. There's a special place in hell mm. reserved for women who don't help other women. Absolutely. Mm. And um, I work to help others to, mm. to develop. So obviously I have a lot more requests for mentoring from outside my university than I can possibly deal with. So what I tend to do is meet people once and then you know, talk, talk them through whether I think they need a coach. Yeah. Or whether they just need somebody wise, and that can be me- me- male or female, yeah. somebody to ring up occasionally, and that might be me mm. or somebody else. But inside the organisation, I try to spend time with newly appointed uh, women heads of department or or equivalent those those new to leadership roles, yeah. just mm. to just to kind of say it can be a bit you know a bit crap, but you know <laughs> these are the this, this is how you get through it, yeah. and you know yeah. this is the toughest job you'll do, and yes this this and this and and you should always have somebody to whom you can say mm. this has not gone well help me or have you done this and what has gone wrong for for either of you where are the flops i mean oh i don't i don't see i haven't <laughs> seen so many flops on these these very glossy cvs but things must have gone wrong and then how do you oh, bounce oh back oh god yes <laughs> loads of mistakes that's how you learn absolutely mm. i think i think for me Everyone makes a lot of mistakes, and I think that what I have learned, so if I just answer that generally rather than give examples, because we could be here forever if I start giving examples of things that I've failed at, I think that the the key sort of learning that I've taken from, from the mistakes is to sort of be kind to myself about making mistakes. I think that women do tend to be a little bit overcritical, and I say this to, to my, my female execs as well, it's okay to make mistakes. You know, everybody does it. It's don't beat yourself up about it. Mm. Just learn from it and move on. So I've learned how to do that. And I think that genuinely I'm here where I am. You know, it's my third CEO role because I've learned from the mistakes I made and because I made mistakes. That's that's part of life. You know, you don't get things right all the time. Sometimes, you know, you have to make very difficult decisions and afterwards you think, oh, could I have handled that better? Probably, you know, particularly when it's dealing with people. Mm. Um, you know, dealing with, with staff, there, there are times when you think, you know, you have to make some really, really difficult decisions about keeping people, perhaps making redundancies. I've had to do that. Nobody ever likes to do that. Um, so that, that, yes, I mean, there are a lot mm. of things that, um, a lot of mistakes I've made. Janet, uh, uh, what's gone wrong? Um, yeah, I mean, again, uh, like Leonore, I won't, I won't go into individual cases, but you know, um, a Paralympian athlete once said to me that her, her mother had worked with her when she was a child on the premise that if it's not a triumph it's a lesson yes exactly and and, you know you learn from your mistakes absolutely yeah and the the two most valuable things i think 
that I learned early on, if I had to learn them, is that saying sorry is, is a good thing mm. if something has gone wrong. If you've got something to be sorry about, say it straight away. Don't, yes. it, don't let it go away or fester or anything else. And never, never, never add cover-up to cock-up. Absolutely. So come your, clean. Exactly. Come exactly. clean. That's Admit a good catchphrase. Yeah. Someone who was on the podcast last week said, um, Stuart from English National Opera said, being nice to people could be quite helpful as well. Yeah, yeah. Say yeah. sorry. Say, mm. actually, Hands up. we messed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. You know, what can we do to put that right? And trust me, we'll never do it again. Mm. I, can I just say that's... Absolutely. And I, and I say this to my staff all the time, you know, if you put your hand up to a mistake, mm. it can often stop, it can stop it from becoming a disaster. Yeah. It's when you try and cover stuff up mm. that you suddenly end up mm. with a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. I Wonderful. Agree. Leonor, Janet, thank you so much for the conversation. You're thank very you very welcome. much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Leading with James Ashton, which is supported by Saxton Bamfile, the executive search firm and leadership advisor. Please rate, review and recommend us. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Stitcher, including a conversation with John Holland Kay, the chief executive of Heathrow Airport. Here he is explaining what the UK can learn from big construction projects such as Crossrail and HS2. What we learned from something like Crossrail is that these things are really complex. That lots of things have to be managed well, interface. There's always a lot of political pressure around sticking to a particular date. There's usually uh, not enough contingency money put in to deal with unexpected things that happen. And so we kind of set ourselves up to fail. And I think that's a real shame because Crossrail will be a huge success. And there's been some fantastic sure. uh, skills used in that. <laughs>